Welcome to Pardes Daily, where you get your daily dose of Torah with Pardes faculty. This time, Pardes is bringing Pesach to you. Let's dive in. This is Mayor Schweiger from Efrat in Israel. Today, we will be studying about Maror, the bittersweet herbs. In our last podcast, we examined how matzah is the bread of affliction how the Jews experienced affliction, not only in their enslavement, but in their redemption. Today, we'll be looking at a certain paradoxical nature of the Maror. So let us begin with looking at the Mishnah in Psachim, chapter 2, Mishnah 6, which lists the different herbs that can be used for Maror. The Mishnah states, one can use chazeret, olashim, tamcha, charchavina, and maror. Olashin are endives, tamcha is horseradish, and the Gemara immediately asks the question, what is chazeret? And the answer is chasa which everyone today in Israel knows, is lettuce. And that was true in the time of the Mishnah as well. But this begs the question, how can we use lettuce for bitter herbs? They're simply not bitter. So now let's look at a story which appears a little bit later in the same page of Talmud. There were two rabbis, Ravina and Ravacha, the son of Rava. Ravacha, the son of Rava, was making a concerted effort to find especially bitter herbs to use for his maror. And when Ravina saw that, he said to him, why are you doing that? Don't you realize that, in fact, the ideal thing to use for the maror is chazeret, the chasa? And then he goes on to bring a whole series of proofs and arguments. Why, chaz, chaz, why chasa, lettuce, is to be preferred. And in the end, Ravacha <clears throat> responds by saying, I retract. You got me. I agree with you. Now, this story <clears throat> raises even a greater question. Not only is lettuce acceptable to be used for maror, but it is actually the preferred thing to be used for maror. And then the question is why? And interestingly, in the course of making his point, Ravina actually gives two explanations of what makes lettuce special. The first explanation is simply the word. The word chasa has as its root, chas, chas, which means to have compassion. And therefore, when we eat the chasa, because of the word, we somehow recall how God had compassion upon the Jewish people. And my understanding of this is that even in the midst of slavery, one could still see God's compassion. To put it differently, things could have been appreciably worse 
So that is perhaps one lesson that we learn. That no matter how bad things get, nevertheless, there may be some type of silver lining, something which shows us that in the midst of the misery, there is still a sense of compassion and care. But now let's look at the second point. The second point is that on a certain level, the way the Egyptians enslaved the Jews mirrors the development of the Chasa. And in the language of the Talmud, just as the Chasa begins soft and then hardens, so too did the Egyptians initially enslave the Jews softly and only later did it become harsh. Now, on the spot, Rashi explains this to mean that, in fact, when the Egyptians first had the Jews work, they pay them wages, which means that the enslavement actually began as what we would call today an employment opportunity. But very quickly, it degenerated into enslavement. Now let's look at this on another level from the Midrash, Midrash Tanchuma, my third source. The Midrash is commenting on a statement Pharaoh makes before he begins the whole process. And he says, let us deal wisely with the Jews. And in the course of the Midrash, it also notes another phrase which comes up during the enslavement. It says how the Egyptians embittered the lives of the Jewish people, befarech. Now, befarech means with harsh, back-breaking labor. But in the Midrash, they see befarech, or they make a play on words, beferach, with a soft mouth. And on that basis, the Midrash creates a very interesting story. It says, it shows how Pharaoh was extremely devious and cunning in how he got the Jews to become enslaved. One day, Pharaoh gathers all the Jewish people, and he has a basket in his hand, and he has a rake, and he starts making bricks. And essentially, he says to the Jewish people the following, which is not in the Midrash. This is my embellishment of it. We have a major national project. We're about to build these storehouses. This is of the most, the first, the highest priority which we could possibly have. And to show you how important this is, here I am. I am now dirtying my hands and doing everything I can to make it happen. Who will help me? And what you find is that the Jews <clears throat> immediately jump in, and as the Midrash describes, they are strong, able-bodied. Over the course of the day, they produce a tremendous number of bricks. At the end of the day, Pharaoh seems to be very satisfied. He says to his, peace, to his people, the taskmasters, Take account of how many bricks they made. 
And from this point on, see to it that every day they fill that quota. What does the Midrash show us? That the enslavement of the Jewish people at the outset was in fact not enslavement. At the outset, it was perhaps the Jewish people rallying to the cry of Pharaoh, seeing what they're doing as somehow being <clears throat> an expression of their loyalty to Egypt, of how they really were con concerned to help Pharaoh in whatever way that they could. They were not able to see through the ruse. They were not able to see what might be the long-term implications of this one-time act. Perhaps it should have been clear that building warehouses doesn't happen overnight. And what does it mean for them to then all of a sudden enter that framework? We can see how we get in, but we don't know how we're going to get out. This perhaps becomes a very important lesson that very often people can either enslave themselves or allow others to enslave them. They see only one aspect of something, but they don't see the long-term implications. So that perhaps something which is worth thinking about at the Seder is how slavery is not all bitter. Slavery sometimes can be very, very sweet. And how do we perhaps keep our eyes open to make sure that we don't allow the sweetness to get us into a state of embitterment? In our next podcast, we will be examining the four sons and essentially talking about what is in a question. Why do questions matter? I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you to our Pardes faculty. And a big thanks to you, our learners. Make sure to check back in every day to stay on track with your learning. And visit www.pardes.org.il for more information about other ways to learn with Pardes.